0: Well, welcome to worship this morning, whether you're here in person in the chapel or you're watching somewhere else online. We're so glad that you have taken the time to join us and that we get to worship together this morning. You know, one of the ways that we can worship God and we can show our faith and our trust in him is by the giving of our tithes and offerings. It's actually a way that we can tangibly show our faith and our trust in God that he provides all that we need. And really everything we have, belongs to him in the first place. And so if you brought a gift that you'd like to give Jesus and his mission today, super easy to do so. If you're here in person, you can drop it off in the box on the way out of the chapel, or you can always give online at calvary.org give or mail your contribution to the church. We are so thankful for your partnership and for your generosity well, last week was an incredible week here at Calvary as we celebrated Holy Week together. And last Sunday, we came together to celebrate Easter at all kinds of different worship experiences. And it was such a great day. We had so many new faces, and we had just a wonderful time celebrating Jesus' resurrection together. And today, we're kicking off a new sermon series called True North. And I think it's going to be an incredible time together as we talk about who Jesus is and what he's able to do in our lives. But this morning, I brought a compass with, perhaps you've had a compass of your own or you've played around with one of these before. Whenever I see a compass, I think about when I was in Boy Scouts as a kid. And specifically, I remember a time when we were camping out in the fall, and one night, Some of the leaders came, and they took a few of us scouts, and they said, grab a tarp, grab your sleeping bag, and grab a compass. And then they took us out deep into the woods, and then one by one, they showed us where we were going to spend the night. And then they gave us some coordinates, and they said, tomorrow morning, when the sun comes up, follow these coordinates, and that's where we're all going to meet. It was kind of a challenge And so I remember sleeping out under the stars on my tarp, and in the morning, the sun came up, and I got the coordinates out, and I started to, you know, use my compass. I had the orienteering merit badge, so I thought I had it all ready to go, but something went wrong. I couldn't quite make it work, and eventually, I was wandering lost in the forest. Well, fortunately for me, eventually, I heard some voices, and I was able to follow those voices and then become unlost. But, you know, if you know how to use it, a compass can be very handy. You know, a compass shows us where north is. And, you know, if you take a compass like this and you hold it very carefully and then, you know, keep it still, you find out, all right, there's north and you can start walking in that direction. And if you follow it for many, many miles, you would end in a northern direction direction. And as you probably know, true north leads right to the North Pole at the very top of the globe. But did you know that if you follow pretty much any compass, just like the one I have, and if you walked very carefully along the line that it's pointing out towards the north, that you actually would not get to the North Pole. And it's because almost every compass uses a magnet. To determine what direction north is and so a compass like the one i have points to magnetic north it lines up with the magnetic pole of the earth and magnetic north is actually somewhere out in extreme arctic canada it's actually not that close to the actual north pole and did you know that magnetic north is always changing. You can see on this map that little by little, it kind of moves across the globe. Some years, Magnetic North can move up to 50 miles, and it's slowly moving towards Siberia, Russia. True North, the North Pole, is actually 300 miles from Magnetic North today. And so the difference between Magnetic North and True North can be quite drastic. And so if you are in Los Angeles, the difference between pointing at True North and Magnetic North is 12 degrees. If you're in New Zealand, it's 20 degrees different. If you're in Minneapolis, we're a little more fortunate. It's not hugely different, it's a fraction of a degree, but it's still not quite on. If you have an iPhone, little known fact, you might not know you could do this, you can go into the settings for the compass and you can turn on and off true north. You can decide, do you want to have magnetic north or you can choose to have true north. And that means if in your household you have two iPhones, you can set one one way, one the other way, and you can see how they don't quite point in the same direction. Now, at this point, you might be wondering, who cares? You might be thinking, you know, I did not come this morning for a geography lesson. But here's the thing. We live in a world and a culture where everyone's compass is pointed in a little different direction. And that matters. You see, if you follow the magnetic pull of our culture, you're never gonna end up at true north. Because magnetic north and true north almost never align. And again, you might still be saying, well, why does this matter? Why is this in a sermon? I mean, or you might even be thinking, I mean, aren't we still going in the same general direction? Does it really matter that much? Isn't it just good enough to be in the same ballpark? But it matters more than you would ever imagine. You see, if you're going to a destination, let's say on an airplane, and you're off by just one degree, it's something called the one in 60 rule. And that means for every 60 miles you go one degree off, you will end up one mile away from your destination. So for instance, if you leave Minneapolis and try to fly to Chicago, but you're off by one degree, you will be seven miles off course. Not huge, but still significant. But how about this? If you leave Minneapolis and you fly to Hawaii and you're one degree off, you will end up 66.2 miles off course. And maybe still that doesn't seem like a big deal. You're like, well, it's still in the same general vicinity. Well, imagine this. If you head to the moon on a rocket ship and you are one degree off, you will end up 4,169 miles in the wrong direction. So now imagine living an entire lifetime not quite on true north. Now that means spiritually or in your marriage or with your kids or financially or with your career. And think about how being off just a little bit might impact your future years ahead. And, you know, maybe that's how you feel today. Like you're not quite on true north. Maybe today you would say, you know, something feels off in my life. It feels like I'm still searching for something. Maybe you lack confidence and you lack peace about your direction. You know, it really is so easy for us to get off course. And sometimes we just take a little bit. We just make a little turn. We think, you know, it's just a little bit of gossip. It's just a little bit of bitterness. It's it's just a little anger. But once we're off course and we live that out for years, it all multiplies more than we would ever imagine. Well, here's the thing. There is a way to get back to true north because Jesus is the only way To find true north, we need to get back to focusing on him. I think he is the answer to what the world needs and to what we need. You know, we spend so much time and energy and resources trying to reorient our lives. We chase after the wrong things. We think, you know, we just need to keep up with the Joneses or we need to chase after the American dream or we need to strive to have some achievement in our life. And the problem is that magnetic pull pulls us away oftentimes from the life we were created to live. So in the Gospel of John, Jesus makes seven different I am statements. And in these statements about himself, he invites us to reorient and to recalibrate our lives to true north, to know who he is and what he's able to do in our lives. Jesus will show us true north. Now, I think one of the ways that we often get off course In life is due to our fears. You know, fear can be a powerful influence. And I think one of the biggest fears people have today is a fear of death. In fact, the only thing statistically people fear more than death is public speaking. You know, we fear death so much that we try to keep it at an arm's length, we try to push death away from ourselves and keep it at a distance. Now, back in frontier times, 100 or 150 years ago, people died in their homes. People confronted death in a personal way all throughout their lives. In fact, many times people would take the deceased and would have family photos taken, if you can imagine. But you know, today we do everything we can to keep death away. We buy products that make us feel or make us look younger. And then when death comes, we try to keep it sterile and cold and distant and we we conduct all of it in a faraway place. Well, you know, it's to a culture with a fear of death that Jesus speaks these words in John 11. He says, I am the resurrection and the life Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. You see, Jesus is pointing us back to true north, that he is the resurrection and the life. He is able to bring life to things that appear dead. Now, this statement that Jesus makes is during a very remarkable story that happens in John chapter 11. And I wanna encourage you to take the time to read all of John 11, maybe this afternoon or another time that you have in the week. But we're gonna look at some highlights from the story beginning in verse one. And this is what it says. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters Mary and Martha. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. Now Jesus was evidently close enough with Lazarus that he didn't even need to hear his name. He just knew by the description that this was about him. And even though there was this very close connection and friendship between the two of them, Jesus decided to stay where he was at for two more days. And he waited to go. And he didn't even share the news with his disciples. Now, there's a lot of complicating things going on. There's people plotting to kill Jesus. They're in great danger. So maybe that has something to do with his pause. But look at verse 17. Finally says, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four years days. Now, this would be a big detail for the early readers and hearers of the story, because the Jewish belief was that for three days after death, your soul would hover over your body. But then on the fourth day, the soul would leave, and finally the body would begin to decompose. And so there's actually great symbolism in Jesus choosing to show up on the fourth day. You see, Jesus waited in love so that there could be no doubt at all that he is Lord over life, but also death. Now, as the story continues on, I think we see two very common responses to pain And loss in our lives. You know, when we face tragedy, losing someone near and dear to us, or it could also be the loss of a dream that we have, or a particular future that we have planned out. Maybe it's a marriage that's barely on life support. Maybe it's a career goal that you're just not able to achieve. Maybe it's a friendship that meant so much to you, but now it's falling apart. Loss is hard to process. Loss is hard to deal with in our lives, and it naturally causes us to ask big questions, even big questions of Jesus himself. So I think the first big question we often ask in times of loss and pain is, where were you you know, if Jesus would have just shown up on time, he could have prevented my loss. Look at Martha's response to Jesus in John eleven twenty one. 21. Martha said to Jesus, "'Lord, if only you had been here, "'my brother would not have died.'" I mean, you can hear the frustration and you can hear the blame in her voice. Jesus, if you would have only come on time and intervened, then this wouldn't have happened. Jesus, if you would have just shown up in the past, I wouldn't have so much pain in the present. Have you ever thought that before? Jesus, you're supposed to have the power to change lives and outcomes and to bring life. Why didn't you show up, Jesus? I know you're supposed to be capable of this. We'll look at verse 37. But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? I mean, if Jesus says who he says he is, or if he is who he says he is, I mean, isn't this really his fault? Well, have you ever stood at a graveside and asked those same questions? Whether it's the graveside of a loved one, Or maybe it's the graveside of a hope or a dream that you held closely. I mean, have you ever asked God, God, where were you when my father or mother died? Where were you when my marriage fell apart? Where were you when I lost my job? Where were you when my child walked away from their faith? Where were you when I was so depressed I couldn't even get out of bed? Why do you seem so far away? Don't you care about what I'm going through? Well, what I want you to notice in the story in John 11 is that Jesus doesn't get angry with Mary and Martha. And it should be a reminder to us that God is more than okay with our questions He asks us to open up our hearts, to be honest about what we're feeling. But if you've ever asked the question before, just like Mary and Martha, if you've ever asked the question, Jesus, where were you? Here's his answer. He was right by your side, hurting with you, grieving with you, experiencing the pain that comes from living in this broken world. You see, he doesn't watch from a distance off in the clouds, totally disconnected. No, he's right here with you. Jesus knew what Mary and Martha were going through, it wasn't a surprise to him at all. And this is no more clear than how Jesus responds to Mary and Martha and their pain. In verse 33, it says that when Jesus saw their emotion and he saw all of these other Jews who came who were also grieving and weeping for Lazarus, it was evident that Lazarus was a deeply loved and beloved and admired man in their community. When Jesus saw all of these hurting people, it says he was deeply moved and troubled in spirit. The Greek word there means that Jesus let out a gasp. It was like the wind was knocked out of him. It means he was overcome with emotion. But in fact, the Greek goes even a step further and says that he was feeling anger in his spirit. And he wasn't angry at Mary and Martha, and he wasn't angry at the crowd. He wasn't angry at their questions or their blame. No, Jesus was angry at death. 1 Corinthians 15 says, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is an enemy. Have you ever been overcome with anger at an injustice or at a bully? Jesus was overcome with emotion and anger and he defiantly asked where have you put him? And you see what he's saying is where is this bully? This enemy named death? I'm going to show him who's boss. And when they get to Lazarus' tomb, Jesus is overcome with emotion again. You all know this verse, because if you were a kid and had to do any Bible memorization, guaranteed this was your number one memory verse. In verse 35, it says, Jesus wept. This is a powerful and profound moment, because again, Jesus is not distant. He's not removed from the suffering and the grief of other human beings. No, in those moments, he is united with us. So where is Jesus when we go through tough times? Well, he's with us every step of the way. And he's able to use those times of waiting and pain and grief to even work good in our lives. He's able to refine us and grow us and to make us more compassionate and more loving towards others. And so while the first response is very full of emotion, I think the other way that we often react and what we see in the story is sometimes we just hold on to kind of an abstract hope of the future. Like right now, things are gonna be tough, but hope will sometime come in the future. Look at verses 23 and 24. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, said Martha, he will rise when everyone rises at the last day. Now, one of the less than desirable ways this kind of thinking shows up is at funerals a lot of times when people come and they say something like, well, you'll see him or her again one day in heaven. Now, that's not wrong, right? But it's not also the most comforting thing to hear when you're grieving in the present. And sometimes it gets way worse than that. People will say something like, well, I guess God just needed another little angel. I remember a family years ago who had a stillborn baby baby. And someone came up to the father and said just that. God must have needed another angel. And the father came and took me aside and said, is it okay if I punch somebody at this funeral? I did advise against it, but I understood his frustration. It was an awful thing to say. You see, if you lose a loved one, or if you lose a job, or you lose a dream, There's some comfort in the idea that Jesus will bring hope someday, but don't you really wish that Jesus would bring hope right now? Don't you wish that Jesus had the ability and the power to affect the present, not just the past, not just the future, but right now? Don't you wish He would do something powerful and redeeming and hopeful today? Well, what does Jesus have to say after all of these responses? What does he have to say about himself? Well, let's look again at verses 25 and 26. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever Die, And what I want you to notice here is that he says, I am, I am the resurrection and the life. I have the power to bring dead things to life. He says, I am in the present, right now. He's not confined to the past. He brings power and resurrection and new life now. Jesus can bring dead things back to life in the present. You see, what he's saying is, do you believe that I'm not just God of yesterday and I'm not just God of tomorrow, but that I'm the God of today? I have the power to bring resurrection today He doesn't say, I can be the resurrection. He doesn't say, I might be the resurrection. He doesn't say, I sometimes am the resurrection. No, again, he says, I am the resurrection and the life in this moment. And so to prove it, he raises Lazarus from the dead right then. So he tells the people to roll the stone away from his tomb and they're freaking out saying, Jesus, don't do it. That's a horrible idea. Remember, he's been dead for four days. The King James Version, I love this. It says, he stinketh. The people are saying, this is gonna be a bad, bad decision. You can't revive something that's already dead. But my question for you this morning is do you have something in your life that stinketh? The dream that's dead, the relationship that's broken, maybe it's your spiritual life that seems dead. No matter where you're at, no matter what's happening in your life, no matter what your story is, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. This isn't just something for the future. It's a present reality. Jesus can bring dead things back to life. And this isn't just something he does. This is who he is. When Jesus is in the room, dead things come back to life. I love how one theologian has speculated that the reason Jesus uses Lazarus's name, he says, Lazarus, come out, is that if he didn't use Lazarus's name, that every single body in the entire cemetery would get up and walk. That's his resurrection power. Well, after hearing this story about who Jesus is, He asks Martha a question, but it's a question for us as well. He says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe in him? You see, the most important thing you can do is to orient and calibrate your life to his true north. Strengthen your relationship with him first. Walk closely with him. Seek to do his will in your life. And along the way, he might teach you and show you that it's best for some things to stay dead. But he'll also show us and teach us what he's able to do when we think all hope is lost. You see, when you believe in him and you're connected to his true north. Well, then his resurrection power lives in us. It's the same power that raised Jesus from the dead that's in us through the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus can revive your life, your heart, your spirit, your dreams, your relationships. And you might think, well, I've messed up too badly. There's no way Jesus can restore me. So dead, it, it stinks. But Remember, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And so maybe your marriage feels dead or looks dead in your eyes, but not in God's. Maybe you have a job that feels like a dead end. Well, Jesus can bring new life. Maybe that dream that God put in your heart seems impossible. And Jesus says, well, watch me work. He is the resurrection and the life. He is true north. Now, maybe you've had a season where you've gotten off course. Well, God is calling you today to get back to true north, to receive his resurrection power, and to live your life for him. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we give you thanks for giving us Jesus for his death and his resurrection and for how he shows us again and again true north. God, help us to orient and calibrate our lives to him. Help us to strengthen our relationship and our connection with him each and every day. And help us to seek to do your will to live our life for you with your values and your decisions and help us to treat others like you've treated us with grace and with love and forgiveness. And so God, as we go from this place, draw us close so that we can continue to live focused and oriented to true north. And so we pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. And let's all say together, amen.